0: This is the Shenandoah Down Under podcast. In the final days of the American Civil War, the CSS Shenandoah set out on an epic year-long secret mission. Join your Australian hosts, Robert Love and Michael O'Brien, as they follow the last Confederate cruiser on its quest to find and sink the Yankee whaling fleet, wherever on the high sea they may find them.
1: And hello, and this is Shenandoah Down Under, or Confederate Pirates Save the Whales, with Mob and Rob, of Robert Love and Michael O'Brien. I'm Rob, and I'm Mob. Good morning, Rob. And and we have a, a more than especially um, a good reason to use your 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 nickname or your abbreviation, Bob, today, because we have a special guest today, who's who's another Michael. Would you like to introduce um, Michael Number Two?
0: Yes, I, I would. I'd like to uh, welcome our guest today. Is uh, Mike Hagen, and Mike Hagen is uh, an Englishman in New York. He's a 18th-century reenactor, so we're going to have a bit of a chat to him about that. A horticulturalist, a bit of an all-round polymath, and as he described him himself, uh, the the Doctor Watson to uh, Chris Gidlow's Sherlock Holmes. Would that be a correct way to put it, Mike? Um, I think so. I, I think
2: Chris would probably go with that. I think if,
0: yes, I think so. <laughs> now, if, you, if uh, our listeners will recall, we had uh, Chris Gidlow, the author and historian, on on a previous episode, where he was uh, very entertainingly recounting the history of the Confederate flag, and uh, Mike got into touch with us because Mike was at the uh, the famous wedding where Chris was in uh, the conf- uh, in the Union
1: uniform. Wait. The Union Colonel's uniform. The Union
0: Colonel's uniform, indeed. In fact, uh, Mike, you were you were Chris Kidlow's best man. I understand. Yes,
2: I, I was one of two best men, um, mm-hmm. and part of my responsibility as being best man for that wedding was the uh, was the phone call I got from Chris, where he told me that uh, part of my responsibility was acquiring all the accoutrement that he needed for his uniform. Oh, uh, gosh. which included the keppies, the sash. Um, I can't remember if it was the sword, but it was the epaulettes, and chiefly, of course, was the brass buttons that go on the uniform. And by some complete action of serendipity, I actually was living at the time in Waterbury, Connecticut, which is famous for the home Um. of the buttons, Button City, (laughs) the Waterbury Button Company. Which is still making brass buttons for the American armed forces, and was making brass buttons in 1860 for the American armed forces, uh, and for, for but, presumably
0: the Union side at that point,
2: or was it for and, both? The, and the Confederacy? Oh, really? Amazingly, apparently they sh- they shipped them to Britain uh, to a middleman, and then were smuggled back into the Confederacy by um, blockade runners. <laughs> Which sort of boggles the mind as to what were these crates labelled as? Um, spinning Jenny parts for export only. I mean, I can't imagine how they got them out of the country, but they did. And uh, all the unit, the buttons that you, the Shenandoah crew would have been wearing, if they were brass, would have been made in Waterbury, Connecticut. Isn't that, that amazing?
1: I, I think serendipity and coincidence is is just an amazing thing. Um, one of one of the sailors on board the uh, the Shenandoah working through the works of Dickens and everybody criticizes uh, Dickens for all the coincidence in his, in his novels but it was actually quite deliberate because Dickens felt that coincidences were absolutely rife. He'd had many of them in his own life it and was, it was actually more realistic to put coincidences in than to leave them out.
0: We actually had uh, a number of coincidences in the Shenandoah story. We've had um, ship captains that have been captured by the Alabama and then the Shenandoah. We uh, had uh, one particular uh, uh, captain, wasn't there, Rob, who'd actually been captured by the some of the crew members of the Shenandoah before as well.
1: Yes, I think, um, yeah, L- L- Lie- elderlyt, Lieutenant Smith Lee, uh, General Lee's nephew, uh, was was first on board um, this poor captain's two ships. Uh, on the Alabama and the Shenandoah, and I think the second time when he he jumped up on board with no doubt a cheery, hello, hello, Captain. uh, He was probably starting to get a little bit old at that point.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the amazing thing about these buttons is they are actually real buttons insofar as they're made from the same material with the same die presses by the same company as made the ones in the Civil War. Ah. (laughs) So... And uh, rather than what any sensible person would do, which was go to a sutler and buy them online, um, I actually talked to someone who knew the owner and actually went up there and explained what was happening, uh, and they gave me them. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> so once I told them this story about my friend getting married, they said, well, to hang on a second, how many do you need? And off they went to the press room and came back with the buttons. Uh, wow. And they have a button museum there, bizarrely enough, but uh, no, it's quite something. They also apparently made the... Reproduction buttons for the film Titanic because they made the buttons for the actual liner itself. So when they needed to make the uniforms for the film, they just wheeled the old presses out and popped them out. Uh huh. Wow. So when when you went there, um, you
0: you got the buttons for uh, Chris's uniform.
2: That this is yes. the this is the, the groom's union and, union colonel's uniform. Yes. And which other ones did you get? Uh just those actually. Uh I'm afraid the uh the rest of the crew were uh consigned to higher costumes. Oh, so okay. only, only the groom and bride and groom were able to uh appear in hand tailored items. But that that's as it should be. That's that's entirely. Appropriate. So I
0: I've seen the uh the photograph of the wedding and um you could hold it up to the microphone now for our uh, <laughs> There you go. For our <laughs> there you go, Rob. Um, <laughs> and, and what were you what were you accoutered at? For, for the wedding. I was
2: actually uh, appearing as a Union cavalry lieutenant. Very dashing. Yes, um, um, I am the one in the photograph not wearing the leather thigh boots. I hasten to add. Well, because you probably only wore
0: those when you were riding a horse, and you probably wouldn't wear them at a wedding, I would assume. <laughs> I didn't stop
2: Nick Brook, but that's <laughs> another story.
0: So um, let us let us go back then to uh, your you're a reenactor, but yes, um, we we have. Quite a few people who are reenactors listening to this podcast, and they're of course Civil War reenactors. Uh, you actually reenact a little bit earlier than that, night. I had assumed it was uh, American Revolutionary War, but actually it's even earlier, I believe.
2: Yes, we do the French and Indian War, which is seventeen fifties. So that's a whole. Gosh, twenty-five years earlier than the Revolutionary War, so it's almost a hundred years before the Civil War starts. So
0: we're sort of talking uh, last of the Mohicans type territory here, aren't exactly, we? Exactly, absolutely spot on. And uh,
2: tell us a bit about that. What 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 do you uh, reenact as? Um, well, the figure I portray is um, someone called uh, Archibald Hamilton, who was actually a Scotsman, and he um, had the unfortunate. Um, Uh, happenstance of being actually captured twice by the French. Uh, The second time he was actually captured was dressed as a Native American, a Stockbridge Mohican. as He was on actually a secret mission sent by General Amherst uh, from upstate New York from Fort Edward to deliver secret dispatches to General Wolfe who was besieging Quebec at the time. But the French got word of the expedition and they captured him and his uh, superior officer, Captain Quinton Kennedy, a sergeant called John Humphreys, and some other Stockbridge Mohican Indians, and they were all summarily captured and thrown in jail in Quebec City. And we know all about it because Montcalm, the French general, wrote a lovely letter to Amherst and said, you know, in a French uh, French accent, you know, we have your officers. Would you like them back, sir? Yeah. <laughs> and of course, yeah, Amherst, you know, chewing chewing his lip, basically said, "Of course, yes, please, please send them back," which they did. But the messages never got to uh, never got to Wolfe. So this is why we know a little bit about Lieutenant um, Hamilton. And as you do research, you know, you find a little bit more about him. He was actually in the Revolutionary War as well. He actually commanded. Um, uh, let me think now, this was in 1750 so it would have been 30 years later he was actually commanding the Queens County Militia in New York and was an aide-de-camp to General Clinton and he unfortunately um, lost his house and all his property and died in exile in Scotland in uh, 1795 I believe. But uh, um, anyway so I could go on at length about this figure but um, for the summer weekends I portray him um, in various spots in New York and Pennsylvania and uh, even further afield, sometimes we sometimes go down to Virginia and North Carolina, and uh, if it's a little bit of a distance, but uh, you know, sometimes the events are very good. So uh, not quite as far afield as the uh, Civil War reenactors; they they definitely get to uh, more of these southern events than we do.
0: So, um, so you are a uh, Englishman in New York. You uh, and when you're reenacting, you're reenacting as uh, someone who was. Uh, on the British side in in these <laughs> wars, and then uh, I guess if you were going to be reenacting in the American War of Independence as this same person, you would
2: still be on the British side. Yes, actually, I am also in a unit that does do the Loyalists. Uh, We don't tend to do it that much, uh, mainly because it's not as much fun as what we do. (laughs) And there's only so many weekends you get to do it. Um, But, yeah, we do do it occasionally. We do do the Revolutionary War, and uh, we do play Loyalists. Yes, so that's what we do play, is uh, uh, British people living in America who were fighting for the, uh, the crown. So, Mike, when you
0: first came to the U.S., You went and saw a historical site which has a connection to our story of the Shenandoah going off to destroy whalers.
2: Can you tell us a bit about that? Oh, absolutely. I am a complete Melville fanatic. And when I moved to Connecticut, I impressed upon my relatives to take me to Mystic Seaport in um, Connecticut to see the Charles W. Morgan, the last of the wooden Yankee whalers. Mm-hmm. And there it still exists in all its wooden glory. Um, in fact, they dry-docked it in 2008, completely refitted it, and... I, unfortunately, was not lucky enough to see it as it did its grand tour of the New England whaling ports last year. But it is now afloat. It's fully functional um, as a – I believe they they teach on it now. Uh, but it's afloat. It's just taken its 38th voyage, and uh, it is an incredible thing. Wow. So uh, the
0: Charles W. Morgan uh, was a whaler. It was built, uh, I believe, in 1841 yes
2: 1841
0: oh, um, and is the only surviving wooden whaling ship from the 19th century uh whaling fleet and I, i'm getting that from that very reliable source wikipedia which also <laughs> has a fabulous pick of the uh charles w morgan in full sail at mystic seaport and wow what an impressive
2: sight It is. It's quite extraordinary. Um, Yeah, maiden voyage in 1841. um, It actually, first trip was three years long, and they actually did go up to the um, Kodiak grounds. They were, I do not know at this point whether they were actually part of the whaling fleet that the Shenandoah was attacking, but certainly at some point in its history, it was up there, Um, and it was pretty much, the whaling ships that they built in that period were, very much, very functional, very built and very standard designs. And the Charles W. Morgan's great claim to fame is that it is the sister ship insofar as it was built in the same yard to the same pattern as the Akushnet, which was the whaling ship that Melville sailed on uh-huh. uh, before Ooh. he jumped ship. So if you're interested in Moby Dick as I am, when you go to the Charles W. Morgan, you inhabit this virtual space it's actual space, not a virtual space, that Melville was imagining when he was writing all of the narrative of Moby Dick. This was the space, this was how where the aft and the fore and the masts were. So you really get immersed in the actual story of the Pequot as you're actually on the ship. It's quite a hair raising experience for, for anyone
1: who, who loves the book. That, that would that would be absolutely wonderful. So you could you could stand on the deck and, and, and pretend you're Ahab throwing the pipe overboard. Although I, these days OHS would probably get at you if you if you did that. Uh, I'm <laughs> sure you wouldn't be the first person to do
2: that. I mean, they do actually have a a an event um, every year at Mystic Seaport where everyone gathers around, and I think they take three or four days to read all of Moby Dick continuously. So if you only really are a complete uh, Melville maniac, you can take part in this Malville marathon, Melville reading that they do every year.
1: But uh, well, no, it's it's quite something. That would be absolutely amazing. And of course, um, one, of, one of the things I didn't appreciate, but um, uh, reading reading the diaries about the Shenandoah, I, I now do, is that um, they make uh, a number make the point a number of times is that because the whalers had two jobs, they had to sail the ship and also you know um, harpoon whales. Uh, their crews were very large so whereas the, the crew of a, of a normal merchantman would only be say 12 or 13 the the crews on the whalers were 40 and of course for for melville writing a a 900 page novel having a crew of 40 gave him so many more characters that he could use and, and such a such a broader scope so um yeah that that, that that's just ab- absolutely amazing
2: it is extraordinary, too, when you, when you go on the boat. I mean, and even looking at it from your perspective as you know, writing this maritime history is it's quite a big ship. It's 50 tons. And as you can see from the photograph, when it's in full sail, it does look like a tall ship. But when you're on the boat, it's incredibly cramped, um, very, very tiny cabins, very, very tiny spaces, um, surprisingly small and um, some would say intimate. You could almost say claustrophobic. Uh, Because the bulk of the ship is that empty space where they're storing 50,000 barrels of whale oil on a good trip. Uh, The Charles W. Morgan cost 52,000 US dollars to make, and it returned with 56,000 dollars of profit when it came back from its maiden voyage, which is about 1.3 million dollars current money. So it actually made a profit on its first voyage. And it made thirty-seven voyages after that. I forget the total revenue it brought in—something like twenty million dollars or something. It was a phenomenally lucrative business right up until probably the, oof, I did not think now, no, the eighteen seventies. So where you are is right at the end, really, of um, mm-hmm. lucrative whale oiling because sort of gas comes in very quickly and electricity soon after that. And yes. then really, the only money in whaling is for uh, is for baleen for for corsets after that. Yeah, we'd, we'd been looking at uh, Eric J. Dolan's book, Leviathan, which is
0: the history of whaling, mm. and it uh, talks about this period in, in some detail. And and yes, the Shenandoah's depredations didn't help either, because that uh, knocked out quite a few of the whalers. And then, of course, the union with the Great Stone Fleet got rid of quite a few other whalers as well. Um, we'd talked about that in an earlier episode, too.
2: Yes, I remember. <laughs>
0: So, uh, by the end of the Civil War, there was actually a great lack of these uh, of these whaling ships so it's interesting that the Charles Morgan has uh, survived do you Do you know why it is the only one that 's left um
2: yes, there's a very fascinating story there's actually a really good story in that book I recommended to you, The Lost Fleet mm-hmm. goes into it in quite some detail um, it's a, some very, very interesting nineteenth century characters. Um, one of the owners ends up with it and he ended up basically parking it outside his house, um, and just letting it sit there And someone says, Well, you know, we really should turn this into a museum. But it's just basically sort of indolence and sloth, really, that it hasn't been broken <laughs> up. Um, it's just because it was very efficient and very successful. It made a profit right up until the 1920s. Um, and then just no one could be bothered to destroy it. It almost, it almost burnt apparently a, another steamer collided with it and it was badly scalded. So it was just fortunate that it was the last one. It was in relatively good condition. And then by the 1940s, you know, the Americans were starting to think about their heritage and someone said, well, we should probably save this, but it wasn't restored until the sixties. And and then again, it was only 2008 that they rehauled it and and made it completely seaworthy again. So really just luck more than anything else. And again, this is the last one. This is the only one left. So uh, there aren't any others.
1: Well, there's only actually a, a few a few Clippers left as well. So there's there's the Cutty Sark, which is mm-hmm. um, perhaps not in its original form, um, and there's the the city of Adelaide, and I believe there's also a, a Clipper in, in South America and um, mm. and one that does uh, transatlantic crossings. So there's only three or three or four of them. But um, it sounds like the Charles W. Morgan it was, it was a bit like a champion racecourse. You know, it was allowed to stay out in the paddock while the rest of them, the less successful ones, were turned into dog food.
2: yeah it's actually it's incredible how it's actually really. it is a floating factory um Mm. you know it's really not designed to be fast it's designed to be seaworthy and it's really designed for one thing only which is capturing and when rendering whales down to their constituent parts um so it's, it's an very interesting ship in that it's it's very very different from uh, any of the other really other wooden ships that you, you you still see around
0: well that's um that that's actually a very good uh, comparison to the Shenandoah that was going up there trying to capture these whalers because uh, the the Charles W Morgan and the other whalers they were actually designed to go up into Arctic waters where there was ice and so on and the Shenandoah wasn't being an extreme clipper and that they'd, they'd suffered from uh, the dangers of going into the ice in the ways that I guess the whalers didn't. How, how do you think the two ships would compare to each other if you if you looked at them?
2: Um, I think very, very similar to probably what you're getting from uh, Master and Commander. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> very sort of similar sort of situation, sort of, sort of even though it's not a, a, a purpose-built warship, you know, it is sort of very sort of sleek and very built for speed, whereas the um, Charles W. Morgan for a ship at the time is a bit of a tug. Um, <laughs> it's really quite wide in the beam. Uh, it's it's quite a sort of a stocky ship. Um, it's certainly you know it's it looks beautiful to us because we're not used to seeing such sail ships. But it's 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 uh, it's a very uh, it has a very sort of almost shaker quality to it. You can see it's been built by um, Yankee craftsmen without any any. It's very sparse. There's no real ornamentation on it. It's very, very functional.
1: Uh, it but doesn't I, I have the that... ginger
0: work of some of the fancy exactly.
1: <laughs> uh, well, of course, <laughs> gi- almost, ginger uh, ginger I... work would cost money, wouldn't it? And, and the Yankees uh, exactly.
2: It's uh... it's. So uh, I think it appeals to us because it's very modern. You know, it has a, a great function, all sort of Bauhaus quality to it. Um, it's very, very well designed for efficiency. Um, there's, there's no superflu- to it superfluity to it at all.
0: Mm-hmm. So, if they
2: went out in their uh, whale boat and uh,
0: captured a whale, where do they bring the whale on board the,
2: uh, the ship? Uh, like they the didn't did bring it on board. They actually strapped it to the side and flensed it uh, in the water. Right. So, if actually, the whales were so big they would have actually sort of. Uh, the, if you read Moby Dick, there's very, very clear descriptions about how the the, the whales were in fact was peeled like an orange, and the mm-hmm. blubber was taken off in strips and cut into manageable chunks. Then that was lowered onto the tryworks, which was basically a. Uh, this is a wooden ship, so when you think they're basically building this fire on the deck, <laughs> this huge, this huge. And this col- is where the tripods are. Is it tripods? So I mean, it's, it's a. Not only do you have this, however many tons of animal flesh chained to the side of your boat, but you're hauling large pieces of it onto your slick, fatty blubber onto your deck and then sort of proceeding to light a very hot fire. So with very, very sharp tools. So the opportunities for mayhem and accident um, abound. Yes, it's it's very an occupational
0: book. health and safety nightmare, I'm
2: sure. <laughs> yes, they wouldn't fly in this day and age, I'm afraid.
1: Um now now is that the origin of the term tear a strip off, off, off someone or is, does that have a military uh, connotation? Does, does anybody know?
2: Oh, I it sounds a it
1: sounds a very wailing term. i I'm, um, I'm I'm
2: totally convinced, <laughs> Rob. That's all I'll say.
1: Oh yeah! yeah. Look, I, I, and again, Mike, Michael often chides me for, for asking a question when I don't know that anybody knows the answer. But but tell you what, we'll, we'll, we'll do a bit of research into that and see if we could do a um, yeah, additions, amendments, and annotations in a, in a later episode. But um, I, I have to say, of course. Um, I had heard of Mystic, Connecticut, uh, previously, but um, only as the, uh, the the scene of uh, that earlier Julia Roberts uh, movie, Mystic Pizza. So um, I'm very glad to hear some more about it.
2: Yeah, and uh, the, new Bedford Bailey, the, the New Bedford Whaling Museum is not very far away either. So um, uh, anybody who's interested in that part of American history should head on over. Um, it's uh, it's a very rich ground. We can buy a pizza, then go to the museum.
1: <laughs> yes, I'm absolutely certain that in in the town of Mystic, there will be a pizza place called Mystic Pizza, and I'm also just as certain that um, nobody working there will look like Julia Roberts. But um, we could we probably leave that uh, leave that subject. Well, I have to say, because uh, Michael, uh, you know, we, we started a um, a podcast about the Shenandoah because, to be frank, that was one of the one of the cheaper options. But I think we're going to have to end up going to Connecticut. I, I think that that would be an absolute must see because, of course. Um, the other thing that we have here in Melbourne, um, we have the the Polly Woodside, which um, again is a, is, a, is a ship really quite similar uh, to the Shenandoah in many ways. It's only about ten feet shorter, um, and um, so if, if we if we if we go down the road to uh, to, to, to Melbourne and have a look at the Polly Woodside, and then go to Connecticut, uh, we can we can get a good idea of what the two types of boats would have would have been like.
0: Oh, absolutely. And then we've got to go to Alaska, obviously, to see the, the, the real place where it all happened.
1: Uh, and, then, and then we've got to go to Liverpool, and then we've got to go to Pay to see Nan Madol, which, um, according to... Um, um, uh, the the Cthulhu Mythos is is one of the uh, one of the places where pe- people worship the the ancient old ones. Um, uh, so I, I think we booked ourselves in for a twenty thousand dollar trip around the world, Michael. I, I, well, think, I, we, uh, I think
2: this is uh, Shenandoah down under the TV series.
1: Oh <laughs> uh, 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 oh, look, uh, uh, you know, uh, gosh. Uh, can, can I say to my wife, when you listen to this episode, uh, uh, yeah, maybe no time soon. Uh. Anyone from
2: National Geographic is listening? These yeah, men, yeah, yeah,
0: they're doing.
2: Give them some money.
0: <laughs> well, Mike, it was a great pleasure talking to you today. I'm so pleased we uh, we got the full scoop on the buttons of our uh, previous guest's uh, wedding costume.
1: Well, can, can, can I just can I just say on that point? Of course, that, uh, in Melbourne, there's a A long-lasting legend uh, about the the buttons on the Confederate uniforms um, on on the on the Shenandoah, um, which is that uh, which I never never realised until now. I I wonder if they sell replica buttons. We could we could get them as souvenirs for the podcast. Um, But anyway, the the legend was that. that, if, if a young lady of Melbourne um, showed, you know, favours to um, a, one of the ship's officers, and uh, I think favours was meant to mean a stolen kiss or a you know, light squeeze of the hand. I don't think it meant anything more. But uh, if, if they showed these favours, they would be rewarded with one of the brass buttons off that officer's uniform. And again, the legend goes that when, when the Shenandoah left Melbourne, there was nary a brass button on the boat to be had.
2: <laughs> uh, uh, well, I would be quite happy to send you gentlemen some Confederate naval brass buttons. They are quite easy to get
1: hold of over here. Oh, we, we, would ap- we would absolutely love to have some of them. yes, would. I'll see what I can do. Well, well I'm going to leave you with, with one thought that's
2: very close to your heart, so I know it hasn't come up during this conversation, but apropos of what's different between 18th century reenacting and Civil War reenacting, yep. no beards. <laughs> very <laughs> a beard to be seen. It was it
0: was, a, it was a clean-shaven period
2: the last It was one, it I was a, a historical anomaly a clean-shaven period. <laughs> that's very strange. That, of course if you're if you're playing a Native American then, as I do you have to shave more than your beard actually which is
1: uh, a depilation
2: goes a little bit further.
1: Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, well, but maybe that's what gave gave our Scotsman away. You know, I don't think it, <laughs> uh, uh, this man pretending to be a Mohican. What could go wrong with that?
2: You know? Well, I, we, we don't. We don't know that they were actually. The funny thing is, we don't know what they look like. We just assumed we knew they were dressed as Indians. But what a Scots officer thought an Indian should look like could have been could have been quite something completely different. So uh, they make, they could have actually looked quite ridiculous. So we we just don't know. So. We may be giving them more credit than we they actually uh,
1: they had. So, so yes, because I, again, I, I've seen I've seen a, a picture of you dressed up in your in your reenactment uniform, and um, yes, you, you haven't you haven't like incorporated a kilt into it or a sporran, which um, yeah <laughs> would, would probably have been a bit of a dead giveaway uh, to. Uh, yeah. Yes.
0: Well, Mike. On that note, we'd like to say thank you very much for joining us today. It's been a fascinating conversation, and. Oh. Uh,
2: we, oh, uh, absolutely. My
0: pleasure. And we, we look forward to, to seeing those buttons.
1: Oh, definitely. I'll, I'll see what I come up with. I, I, think, I think we might even give a button to guests on the show, but we might have to come <laughs> up with, with something else for Michael because <laughs> keeping one of his own buttons is probably not the best souvenir he's ever had. <laughs> it's but a so. bit churlish.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Mike, for joining us today. It's been fascinating talking about the buttons, the whaler and also your experiences as a time-traveling pre-revolutionary war reenactor. It's been great.
1: Pre-revolutionary yeah, um, Scottish Mohican. Yes. 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 <laughs> <laughs> what a fascinating uh, interview with uh, with Mike. And uh, look, we uh, before we give Mike his send-off, we, we might actually go through what happened um, in in the, in the week of the fourteenth to the twenty-first of July, um, one hundred and fifty years ago, and. Um, <laughs> uh not so much spoilers uh not a whole lot happened and in fact um midshipman mason has two entries uh for the week oh. uh mainly about the weather um so i, I think i'll give uh the, the the most interesting one of them and then, then hopefully michael you've got uh something a little bit interesting and also where are we because mason doesn't really say it. oh yes he does um Monday, the 17th of July, 1865, we are having the most beautiful weather, mild and sunshiny, a fine breeze, quartering starboard studding sails set going seven and eight knots. The latitude today was about 37 and the thermometer stands between 60 and 70 in brackets. I shall be into my summer clothes, white pants, oh, etc. Another, <laughs> so, uh, another pants entry. Another uh, pants entry, but I have to say, you know, um, we we might be flogging a bit of a, you know, torn white pair of calico pads there. But uh, that I have to say, well, uh, mind you, they're out of the roaring forties, so they're into the presumably whatever the the, the mild thirties M- are, much
0: more pleasant thirties.
1: The much more pleasant thirties. So um, y- yes, well, that's um that's about it for Midshipman Mason. Did, did anything exciting happen in, in the rest of the ship? Well, Whittle, Whittle
0: pretty much recounts two interesting things that happened during this week as they're, as they're heading south. One is that um, one of the crew, uh, unfortunately, uh, can't get back to the UK in time to collect his annual pension. He was a pensioner on the British government for £15 per annum for wounds received at Sevastopol. So that would have been in the Crimean War uh, 10 years before this. Yes. But unfortunately for this poor fellow, by by the English rule, these pensioners have to receive it in person. And as they've got no way of getting him out of the ship to be there by October, um, apparently he loses that pension for life.
1: Well, I've got two responses to that. First of all, that's a bit harsh, and... um has somebody suggested that to David Cameron? Because um, over in the UK at the moment, they're only sanctioning sanctioning people from their benefits for six weeks or something if they don't turn up to an interview. But I think sanctioning them for life would um, would, would absolutely save the government a whole lot of money. That, that's a For somebody who, who survived Russia in the Crimean War, that, that's a bit low. But, it, it is a bit low. But it, it also shows that, that when he shipped on board a trip around the world, perhaps he didn't have his thinking capital.
0: Very possibly. So this this fellow um, was made the the new Sergeant of Marines because unfortunately Whittle had to disrate the previous Sergeant of Marines. He, he, He recounts a story here of, again, a story of drunkenness which seems to happen quite a bit.
1: Are, are there any other kind aboard the... Um, it seems that, you know, as, as we said last week, uh, Midshipman Mason is the only one of the crew who seems to be not a hard tosser. Yes. So, so, so how did the, the poor ex sergeant of Arms meet his, meet his face? The
0: Sergeant of Marines uh, unfortunately went to visit the Master at Arms while he was on duty and um, who gave him a drink. And then uh, apparently hung around for more drinks. And you don't do that when you're on duty.
1: Oh, and, and now this would be uh, Mr Canning, who um, was the ex aide to uh, General Polk, supposedly.
0: Ah, uh, Yes, I'm afraid Mr Canning has just lost his job because, as Whittle says here, his position on board ship rendered it absolutely necessary for the proper maintenance of discipline, so he has to be punished. And punished he was by being disrated. So, oh,
1: dear, dear, dear. Well, look, the, the, drinking on duty is never a good thing, it's, especially when you're the guy who's got the guns.
0: I, indeed. <laughs> so they, they're pretty much the, the two key events that happen while the Shenandoah is still heading south. They are very keen to see if they come across a ship that is travelling from San Francisco to China because it will have more news. But sadly, they, uh, they don't see one in this week.
1: Well, uh, perhaps not quite so sadly for them, 150 years ago. Yes, because the news um, is not going to be good. Oh dear! Oh dear. Well, well, uh, isn't it great that we had such an interesting guest on this week? And I think, I think, it, it, so we. <laughs> so, thank you for hanging around for, for not terribly long, uh, Michael. To um, yeah, uh, to listen to what happened 150 years ago, and. Um, <laughs>
0: Okay, so this was Shenandoah Down Under or Confederate Pirates Save the Whales with Rob and Mob. I'm Mob, so I'm getting in first this time and I'm going to say say Tally Ho.
1: I'm Rob and I'm going to say Ahoy. And and now, uh, Michael, uh, something a Scottish Navajo lieutenant would say to say goodbye. Uh, No no, no pressure here. (laughs) Oh, hi the dude. oh, very well done! Clap, 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 <laughs> and uh, and hear from you all next week. Good goodbye. 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 <laughs>